This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Something More, Reflections on a Bountiful Life by Alexander Kalanak with Josephine Karubia. And Josephine joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joe. Hi, how are you, Steve? Well, Alexander Kalanak has passed away. It was about a year ago that he passed away? Yes, that's right. He died in September of 2008. So you helped write this book about this uh, sports medicine doctor, right? Yes. Uh, we um, At first, I um, was just going to do a story with him, um, and I brought my tape recorder, and he decided that um, he enjoyed that so much, he decided he wanted to write a whole book. So we started that very day. And not only do are we talking about an orthopedic surgeon, but we're talking about a man who was known as one of the best doctors in America and for 22 years was the sports medicine uh, physician for Penn State, correct? Penn that's, State football. That's right. He was the orthopedic surgeon for the Penn State football team and the other athletes at Penn State University. So why did he want to write his book? He obviously got you involved, but what what was going on? What was his motivation? I think he wanted to um, to document for his children, his grandchildren, his friends, his patients, and his students um, the path that he took from being the child of a immigrant coal miner to becoming a doctor um, and to of finding his way into the forefront of sports medicine. Um, he also um, had many stories about his, uh, his personal faith and the ways that people could um, improve medicine by connecting with their patients. Yeah, he was one of the pioneers, wasn't he? Yes. So, so he entered sports medicine when it really was just starting to be a, a sub-discipline that people could specialize in. Um, so he was right there at the beginning with um, inventing the techniques and the tools for arthroscopic surgery and all of the other techniques that we take for granted today when, was back, when someone's injured. That was back in the 1970s. That's right, back in the 70s. Now, also part of the book is a very special foreword by Coach Joe Paterno of Penn State. Obviously, he knew... Alex, very, very well. Yes, they worked together for 22 years, and they seem to have had a a mutual respect for each other. Um, Dr. Kalanick talks about Coach Paterno in the book and talks about his wonderful coaching style and how he prioritized the education of the young men who became athletes. And um, Coach Paterno, um, when we asked him to look at the book and write a foreword, he was very happy to do so. So this starts out where? where? Where does this book start? Now, it starts with his mom and dad, and where are they living? His parents, um, his dad was born in Slovakia, and his mom was born in the Ukraine. And as um, teenagers, they both um, separately developed a great desire to come to the United States and, and managed to get themselves here 
and the father um, went to work in the coal mining in western Pennsylvania, and his mother was working in New Jersey, and um, uh, the the coal mining companies knew that there weren't very many women in western Pennsylvania for the young men who came to work in the coal mines, so they would take them to um, areas near New York City on the weekends, and that's how his parents met. So he starts the he starts the story with the story of the immigration of his parents, and then moves on to his childhood in a small coal mining town in western Pennsylvania during World War II. So it's a very um, quintessential American story about growing up during um, a difficult time in a very um, interesting place. Work, work, work. <laughs> that was pretty much it. As a as a coal miner, you you worked a lot, and the children saw that lifestyle, and I don't believe any of the 11 Kalanick children went on to become coal miners. They all went on to become professionals. And they were ready to get out of, uh, what was the name, Nantiglow, huh? Nantiglow, Pennsylvania. Nantiglow. Now, where's that located? It's in western Pennsylvania. It's, um, I guess it would be um, in the southwestern part of the state. Okay. He knew that he didn't want to stay there and work in the coal mine, so what was the the process of him getting to Penn State. That, that was, uh, that's quite a leap. Well, he was the youngest of 11 children, and in the family there was always a strong encouragement for education. And two of his sisters had um, left, even I think right around the time he was born, his two oldest sisters, and they moved to New York City and, and, and decided to go to college there and, and get educated where if you were a resident, you could go to college for free. So the two older sisters helped all the younger siblings, and um, when when Alex um, was ready to go to college, they helped him go to Penn State. And so he became um, a pre-med major at Penn State, and um, you know that was the beginning. Now he also spent some time in the Navy. Yes. he um, When he was a boy growing up in Nanny Glow, a lot of the young men idolized a, um, an air pilot named Buzz Wagner, who was from Nanny Glow. In fact, I believe he graduated the year one of, um, one of the Kalanick brothers graduated also from the high school. And, and Buzz Wagner went on to be the first air ace of World War II. So a number of the young men in that town were really enamored of the idea of learning to fly. And after medical school... And one year of, of an internship, um, Alex Kalanak decided to join the Navy to become a flight surgeon because they um, allowed him or, or trained him as pilot at the same time. That's pretty exciting, that's for sure. I'm sure that was a dream come true. It was, and, and some of his stories about uh, some of the interesting um, occurrences and the uh, drama aboard a, um, um, an aircraft carrier are, are very, very interesting. Now, how do you become the orthopedic surgeon for a major football team? Well, I'm sure it has something to do with his being a Penn State alum, but he was, um, after his, all his medical training, he was, um, he was a young doctor in Albany, New York, and he and his family were watching Penn State play in one of their bowl games, and it occurred to him that, he might like to go back to Penn State as the orthopedic surgeon for the football team. 
So the next morning, he picked up the phone and he called someone at Penn State and said, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to you and, and become the surgeon for the football team. And it just happened that at Penn State, at that moment, they were thinking it might be time that we hired our own Penn State physician to be the surgeon for the football team. So it was um, the right place at the right time. And with that phone call, he was invited for an interview, and and they hired him. Timing is everything. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, good for him and good for Penn State. I'm sure that... Well, that, that is just uh, wonderful when you read a story where even though life can be very difficult, but things do work out for those who persevere, I guess, right? That's right. That's right. And I am sure that that was one of the reasons of, of, of his story. I mean, for his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to, to have that kind of legacy. Yes, he, he was... a. He describes himself as a little boy who loved to learn, and you can see that running through his whole life, um, persevering through his pre-med education when his his you know earlier education hadn't really prepared him for it. But he persevered, and he just was determined to learn, and he kept learning all his life. I think, um, in fact, one of the sayings that um, his family has told me was one of his very popular sayings was, Growing and learning, learning and growing. And that was something he did his whole life. Now, you write that he had a very unique prescription for the doctor-patient relationship. Now, tell us what you mean by that. Well, Dr. Kalanick believed that you don't treat simply the illness or injury that's in front of you, that you treat the whole person. And so he was very careful about how he approached people, and he... He was always optimistic and interested in the person's life as well as in the you know, particular situation that came in front of him on that particular day. And he would tell his patients that there are three parts to um, healing from an injury. There's the, the surgeon who can do surgery. And because he was a man of faith, he believed that God was important in healing the injury or the wound. But he said the third part was rehabilitation, and that was up to the person themselves. And therefore, he tried to have each person feel involved in every decision that was being made because they had a job to do in getting better. So he was unafraid to talk about the spiritual side of his life. That's right. He was, he was not afraid of that. Um, he and his whole family were actually quite... Um, quite religious and of this very strong faith that saw them through some very hard times. Any particularly uh, uh, moments in his career that were very unique that you write about? Uh, did he share with you? Did you give us one? Well, there's, there's a very interesting story that I, I really um, was, was quite a difficult um, medical moment, but it was a very interesting story. He was telling me about... Um, one time when he was on duty as a Navy flight surgeon and they were, they were doing some uh, maneuvers and he was on the base, so not on the aircraft carrier, but on the um, ground. And he was watching uh, two young men um, prepare a plane to make sure that it was, everything was up to spec for the, the next day. And one of the young men was in the cockpit and one was um, giving him signals from the ground and they wanted to test the engines. So um, 
when they turned on the engines, the young man on the ground was just too close to that engine, and he was sucked inside. And um, the young man in the, in the cockpit immediately turned off the engine. Well, the physicians, of course, rushed in, and they had to extricate the young man from that jet engine. And he, he says in the book, um, there is nothing in your education that prepares you for something like this, that you are, you are going in and you are praying that you can use your skills in a way that will save someone's life and, and save as much as possible of their, of their limbs and their facilities, and you just um, work as calmly and as quickly as you can. Um, and that young man did survive. Um, being sucked into a jet engine, I believe he lost um, part of one arm, but he um, did survive and go on to um, lead a productive life after that. So that was a, a pretty dramatic situation, I thought. I'd say, my goodness, I, on uh, all sides of that yes. event, right? Yes. Now, you write, Joe, that when he was young, back in the early 40s, 1940s, Life magazine sent a photographer to film the coal miners who were having a pretty big challenge uh, at that time in that community. Tell us about that and how that related to Alexander. Yes, Steve, that was um, in 1943, the coal miners in the United States were threatening to go on strike and... Um, of course, this was wartime, and, and so many people were saying that this was a very unpatriotic um, act. And Life magazine sent Alfred Eisenstadt, um, a very famous photographer, along with a crew, to Nanny Glow, Pennsylvania, to take a look at the situation. And somehow they got invited to go home with uh, Michael Kalanick, um, Alex's dad, and came to their home and, and took photographs of uh, the family. There's some uh, photographs of them sitting in their living room, and um, of course, at that time, the Kalanick family had four sons in the armed forces, as did many, many families in Nanny Glow. Um, I believe that town was one of the towns, that, in terms of their population, that sent a higher percentage of young men to fight in that um, in the war than than many other communities, and. Um, um, Alfred Eisenstadt was able to um, take photographs and show that the coal miners were actually very patriotic, both in how they sent their their children to fight for a country, but also in that they were fighting for some basic rights of workers um, to be paid when they are actually on the job and not to have the company um, having them put in time that was not paid for. So it was... Um, Still very exciting for the family to look back at that um, Life magazine and see their mother and father and and, um, Alex and his twin sister Anna and their younger siblings um, in that Life magazine. We've just got a little bit of time left, but tell us about the last year of Alexander's life when he was working with you on the book and how he inspired you. Well, he had um, pancreatic cancer and... During the time that we were working on the book, he was often quite ill, um, but we would sit down for an interview, and I would hear his voice get stronger and stronger um, over the course of an hour or two that we would work together as he got very excited about telling his stories. 
Um, I think for me the most inspiring um, moments were when he talked about his uh, relationships with his patients and how he felt that um, he was treating the whole person and not just um, an injury or an illness, but that he was interested in hearing the person's story and how that often helped patients um, recover from, from an injury or illness. Well, Joe, tell us how to get your book. We have, um, we have set up a website. Um, it's the author's name, so it's www.alexandercalinac.com. And on the website, you can uh, read some excerpts from the book and also order a hardcover or a paperback copy of the book. And Kalanak is K-A-L-E-N-A-K, alexandercalinac.com. That's right. And you can also get it from Author House. That's right. And um, I believe if you type in his name, I I think there are several other um, online companies that carry the book. Joe, thanks for being on Author Talk. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve. Bye-bye. That was Josephine Carubia. She is the writer of the book, Something More, Reflections on a Bountiful Life by Alexander Kalanak, M.D. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinoteca, Nicaragua. These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits, a slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's Best Coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. 
Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Oxendar, and the author is Judith Montgomery, and Judith joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Judith. Hello. Well, you're going to take us back into the 70s, into Afghanistan, into a critical, critical time in their history. Of course, I guess it's in Afghanistan, it's war all the time, isn't it? Over the centuries, there has been a lot of invasion. There has been a lot of war. These people have endured an incredible amount. This is fiction, but it's based on fact, obviously. Yes, it is. Why write the book? What's the motivation? The motivation was that this is a story that needs to be told. I, I argued with myself for years. I said it should not be written by a woman. Then the answer from, you know, within myself came, uh, it could only be written by a woman. It's a story that needs to be told because it's the Afghan story from the Afghan point of view. Uh, these people are defending their country. They're trying to create sense out of chaos. They're trying to build something that is Afghan. They're trying to cope with the, the threat of Russia invading from the north, which Russia has wanted to do for years. I expect they still do, even though they're not saying so at the moment. But in the 70s, the Soviet bloc was still very much intact, and all of the southern border of Russia included all of the stands, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and the only thing standing in the way of Moscow getting to the Gulf, to a warm water port and the Gulf oil and all the natural gas, was Afghanistan. So if they could pacify Afghanistan, it was 300 miles of open desert to Karachi. And the, the handwriting was on the wall. There were a number of Afghans who said, oh no, 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 this is our country. We will not stand for the Russian invasion. So they tried very hard to beat off the influence of that first Marxist government, which was set up in 78 by Moscow, supported by Moscow. And in that time, things got very, very ugly. There were all sorts of land reforms, and nobody liked them. There were water reforms, and nobody liked it. The secret police were running around arresting people. They were attacking villages, burning off their crops so that Hungry people wouldn't have the stamina to resist. Uh, ultimately, at the end of 79, just after the time frame of my story, they did invade. But what happened between April of 78 and December of 79 is pivotal in the history of Afghanistan and what's going on today. Because it was during that time that the Mujahideen was born. It was during that time that the Taliban was born this, the concept of getting rid of the foreigners, let's go back to basic Islam, if that's 16th century, so be it, we'll start over. Um, and had there been help for Afghanistan at that time, I think a lot of the nastiness that we have today could have been avoided. But we have to deal with history as it is. So the name of the, the, name of the game was, we have to protect Afghanistan. Now what is the title... Oxendar mean? Oxendar is the name of a mountain. It would be the Dari pronunciation for Alexander. Alexander the Great came through there in 300 B.C. 
uh, spent a lot of time in that part of the world, actually, and built a lot of things, made a lot of inroads, established towns, villages, cities, courts, and there are a lot of remains of Alexander left. And this particular mountain is named after Alexander with, with their own pronunciation on it. So we have Akhtar. Now you write that this is one man's fight for justice, which leads him into danger when tradition and honor are bashed by corruption and the secret police. Well, well that is fact and fiction, I guess. And in this case, fact is even more uh, dramatic than fiction. That's true. Yes, the man in the story is a fictional character. And his name? His name is Aziz Rashan. Aziz, and uh, what does he, what kind of a person is he? Give us a little thumbnail sketch of him. Well, he's 36. He's a Pashtun, which is the predominant tribe in a tribal society. But he has a sense of honor. He, he feels directly involved in, we have to maintain Afghanistan for Afghans. I know that I can do this if I get enough support. Um, his cousin Issa tries to convince him, oh, we need support from Europe. And his response is, oh, we need support here. We don't need support from Villa somewhere in your Capri. So what he's, his mission is to try to bring justice and some sort of ability to dissipate the chaos and create a stable situation where they don't have foreign invaders, where Afghans can get together, sit down, have tribal conferences, and start building their country themselves without foreign invaders. And uh, it's not easy because Russia had many, many fingers in many, many pies at that time. And the secret police were arresting everybody. You know, the, the charge would be suspicion. Well, suspicion of what? Well, it's never really defined, and we don't have trials. People just flat out disappear. And uh, that was happening all over. Uh, anybody who was probably able to do this, all the educated class, was marked for execution. Many of them escaped over the mountain, you know, in the nick of time with their lives. Um, 78 was a particularly bloody time. By 79, it was really chaotic. And Aziz is in the midst of all this. We can't let this stand. We have to do something. And so that is his mission. Uh, we, have, we have to have justice for Afghanistan. It's been a long time coming, several centuries. Well, this is the moment. So is he a leader of an underground movement? Yes, he is. Yes, yes. It, it had to be an underground movement. Otherwise, he would have been arrested. And he's marked anyway for arrest throughout most of this story, and he knows it. So it's, uh, there is that uh, going on at the same time. His political involvement is, is pretty much secret, but there are people who suspect, so he's, uh, he's jammed up against a rock and a hard place there. He has a love affair with a foreign woman, so he's really being 
criticized by the religious conservatives who want to boot out all the foreigners. Well, she's one of those. So there is a big conflict between tradition and honor and doing what's right because that's the right thing to do. And how does one define integrity? And that's the dilemma. That's part of the part of the process of the evolution of the character in, in the story. So who is he up against? Who's his uh, greatest antagonist? Uh, the Russian machine. The Russian machine that's in power at that time. In the government at that time? That's true. That's true. Where you have all the corruption and the, all the corruption secret police. and The secret police. They're, uh, they're shoring up their own army, the Afghan army, with recruits from... Tashkent and Samarkand because Afghan soldiers are deserting. They see the handwriting on the wall. They they know this is not what we want. So the Afghan army is deserting in huge numbers, and they're they're going out into the mountains to join the emerging mujahideen. There was no mujahideen movement at that at that time, but it was becoming. And the army deserters went into the mountains and said, "Oh no, 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 <laughs> we're we're not standing for this." Either that or they joined the religious zealots and said, well, we'll fight on this, on this ground because we can't stand that either. So we had two things going on. We had the, the power grab from Moscow and we had the resistance of the Afghans themselves in whatever way they could resist. And it wasn't until the mid-'80s, well after the Russian invasion, that the U.S. started sending Stinger missiles and, and those things to help them. But in in 79, there was no help. And they were pretty much stranded with a situation that they had to cope with. So uh, it is an adventure tale. It's a page-turning kind of story. Uh, Very fast-paced, a lot of action. So it appeals to men as well as women. I've had a lot of men call me up and say, Wow, boy, I didn't know the story was going to be like this. (laughs) This is really exciting. And I have said... Cool, I, I do like it. it. It has appealed to women as well as men, people who remember that time, as well as younger people who do not remember it, but they know about it in the backhand sort of way because that's what we've got now. Well, and it's the name Afghanistan fills up the news almost every day. It does indeed. It does indeed. And if our, if our forces pull out, uh, it, it will be an interesting situation. I had the feeling when we were in Vietnam that we need to leave. And having been in Vietnam recently, in the last couple of years, I realized the best thing we did for Vietnam was leave. Yes, yes, they had a rough couple of years after we left. But they have rebuilt their country themselves. Vietnam is now a moving, grooving sort of place they have an enormous population under 30. There was even an article in the Bangkok paper not long ago. If you want to build a factory, do it in Nam. They have you know, ample opportunity. So maybe the best thing to do would be to have the soldiers leave, but bring in advisors who can help with the, the other things that Afghanistan needs. They need roads, they need wells, they need schools, they need help. They need 
their educated classes back, all those people who left and are now in San Francisco and London, we need to bring them back because they, they're the educated class. So Afghanistan needs help, but they don't necessarily need soldiers. If Afghanistan were progressive, the Taliban would die of its own strangulation because the countryside doesn't like the Taliban. They don't want the Taliban, but it's better than the corruption coming out of Kabul at the moment. So they're really stuck. And if we can help them get unstuck without shooting, we need to sit down and just put the guns away, take the helmets off, sit down, have tea, maybe even have tea with the Taliban and talk to them. Look, you know, we understand. We want to help you. What kind of help do you need? We're here. And, well, the, you, guns, and the guns are outside. We're not shooting. You say that the Afghan people, I mean, like most Regular people just want peace and a chance to live without fear. So yes, they do. this becomes Aziz's quest, his mission, right? Yes, yes. Got, he's got to attain that. Um, it's, for him, it's a matter of honor. Um, but he's got to do it and still maintain the tradition. Otherwise, Afghanistan falls apart. Now, does this American woman... Uh, play an important part in his success at the same time uh, she being, it's a dangerous, as you put it, love affair? Well, it is a dangerous love affair because he's getting criticism on all sides for even having anything to do with this woman. She is not pivotal in his success. She is pivotal in his dilemma. Who is pivotal in his success? Uh, at I'm not sure we can define success. <laughs> okay. Pivotal in the uh, plot of the story. Aziz himself. He, he goes through an enormous set of trials and finally has to decide between what's right and what's selfish. What am I going to do? Am I going to look after myself? Am I going to devote my energies to the country? Uh, where does integrity lie? Uh, there is, when you talked about success at the end of the story, there is probably an idiomatic expression in Dari, is the language of Afghanistan, and the expression is tamamshud, which translates to everything became. What was supposed to become, become. So in Aziz's search for justice, he ends up finding truth. We just have to leave it there because I can't give you the end of the story. Otherwise, it's all spoiled for you. <laughs> well, exactly. We understand completely. Well, it sounds like a riveting, dramatic, uh, as we just said, it's fiction, but it's fact as well of what these people have gone through and what they're going through and who knows what they'll continue to go through, but it's, I'm sure there's, there's people like Aziz right now trying to figure out a way to save the homeland. I do know a couple of those people who are, who are in Kabul. They, they left because they were marked for death, but they have come back. With enough support, maybe they can make a difference. I certainly hope so, because I love that country. I really do. There's... There's a draw there that I just can't leave alone. So we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Well, Judith, tell us how to get your book. 
Well, it's available on my website, which is www.oxandar.com. It's also available from Barnes & Noble. I don't know if it's on the shelves of Barnes & Noble or Borders. I did Google the name, excuse me, this morning. Google tells me it's available in India and in England. It's the easiest way for people to get a copy. Right. The website, which is, and that website is spelled A-K-S-A-N-D-A-R.com. That's correct. Well, thank you for being on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much, Steve. That was Judith Montgomery. She is the author of her book, Oxendar. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Mr. and Mrs. Smith's Employment Survival Guide. And the author is Odie Smith, and Odie joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Odie. Hello, Steve. How you doing? This is certainly timely to have a employment survival guide. Maybe one of the reasons you wrote it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, it is. Well, tell us some of the some of your background and then a little bit more about this motivation to uh, publish your book. Okay, currently I am the customer service manager and regional manager for an IT company here in St. Louis. And my wife, DeVal, is a, a licensed pharmacy technician in 
both of us have gone through a lot of layoffs in the past 18 years. And I was laid off three times at one company, and uh, she was laid off also. And we've collected a great deal of information that we would like to share with uh, everyone that's either employed or unemployed. You say that the mission and contents of this book is to inform everyone of the effectiveness of enhancing their employment status, and it's very important that people know what resources are available, right? Yes, sir. That's true. And you've kind of pulled it all together. Yes, sir, we have. Um, we, we selected six of the most important areas for unemployment and uh, persons who are on the doorstep of a layoff. Uh, those six areas are uh, departing uh, a job, how to prepare yourself before you get laid off, uh, also uh, employment. We talk about suggestions on which bills you should pay first while you're unemployed. Uh, we give advice on unemployment benefits. Uh, the third topic, we talk about education, uh, the importance of an educated employee and how to embrace the value of an education. The fourth topic is uh, resumes. Uh, we provide uh, two sample resumes and how to write the correct resume for the correct job. The fifth topic is job interviewing, and we speak on how to conduct an appropriate and thorough job interview. And the last topic is working, and we speak on the assistance on how to preserve your present job. Uh, we felt that these are the six topics that uh, a lot of unemployed and employed persons should uh, approach. So these are survival tips, as you put it, practical information, because you never know when the unexpected is going to come. That is correct. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, most employees, uh, they do have an idea whether if their employer is prospering enough to sustain revenue and keep their current staffing. But uh, if the company is not profitable enough to continue their business, and layoffs may be forthcoming, and you may not know, you may not see that. Uh, there are some companies that will lay you off, uh, give you a two-day notice, three-day notice. Some companies will give you a thirty-day notice. Well, we try to cover all the topics for either case. Well, let's talk about a few of these, and you can give listeners a few tips, and they can get, of course, the complete information by getting your book. But let's give them a few tips. Uh, you know, in your very first chapter, you talk about how do you prepare to leave your current job. Now, what what is uh, preparing for a layoff or a, ter term a termination? How do you prepare for that? Well, that's, that's very difficult because you may not know uh, uh, as they say, if the axe is about to fall. Um, but we talk about how to best conduct yourself while you're on the job. Uh, if you have an idea if a layoff or a termination is coming, we speak on how to be a better and motivated employee while you're there. Uh, also, we talked about behavior conduct. Uh, that is also speaking on what you should do and how you should follow uh, some of the steps that we provide to keep your, your current employment. 
Now, you also say in your book you have uh, Bible verses added to each chapter that are relative to the topic, and each verse is intended to encourage you. So why did you put those in? Well, everyone needs an internal encouragement, and uh, the best time we feel is when uh, you are at a loss. These Bible, these biblical verses are uh, uh, very relative to each topic. Um, our favorite one has to do with uh, Chapter 6, which is Unemployment Insurance and Benefits. It's from the King James Version. It states, Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. That's from Psalms 37, 3. Well, we certainly have to have a lot of faith to make it through tough times, whether we have faith in God or faith in ourselves or whatever faith we have in. It takes an extra amount of energy and focus, doesn't it? Yes, sir, it does, yes. And and we live by our priorities, our priorities. My wife, myself, and our two children, as God is first in our, in our life, our home, and our job. We put God first, our family and friends, our home, and then our career. We feel that those priorities and that priority list keeps us going daily. A lot of times people are put in a bind waiting for that unemployment check, right? That unemployment insurance check. They often get delayed. Is there, are there any tips to speed that up? Oh, yes, sir. Immediately, once you... Are laid off. You cannot file prior to a layoff or termination, but once you're laid off, if you have time in that day, the best thing to do is go file immediately at your local unemployment office. Uh, there is a two-week waiting period for most states, and uh, if there's a two-week waiting period and you wait the following week before you file, and there's, now there's three weeks without an unemployment check. So I advise all my friends, all my coworkers who also been laid off, to immediately file for unemployment. So very first thing, when you're walking out the door and saying goodbye, you make your first stop is the unemployment uh, center. Yes, sir. And if you're blessed enough to know that you're going to get laid off, then you should already prepare and be proactive to find your local unemployment office so that you'll know exactly where to go. Now, education of... I think that is, well, we, we talk about it. You know, we understand in general, at least with our words, how important education is. Of course, education also takes uh, a lot of energy and effort, and but it is so key, isn't it, to uh, not only maintaining your job but getting that next job. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, there are a lot of companies that uh, today will not hire um, an applicant, unless they have, of course, the credentials, and including an, a college education. Uh, a lot of companies may uh, overlook someone who just has a high school diploma, and uh, they will go with someone that has a college degree. So embracing the value of an education is very important. And uh, we feel that although there are a lot of education, a lot of schools out there, they're online colleges. Um, those are the ones that uh, we really tend to look at because you can 
go to school at your time, at either in the evening at home, and uh, go to work during the day. Resumes obviously is a is an art. How to create a resume? You want just that right message to be in front of the, your potential new employer. So, what are some of the maybe just a few of the action words as you call them for your resume? Oh, that, I'm glad you said that. Um, a lot of hiring managers who look at resumes, uh, they look at those attention attention getting words, uh, team player, team leader, um, if you put in I've accomplished or achieved or resolved, they look at that and they, they see a very motivated person who knows where they want to go and how they got there. Now, when it really comes down to that interview, you really have to be prepared for that interview for that new job. You, you've that seems that is all. All of this is important, but boy, there is that moment that you have got to shine. Oh yes, sir. That is that's very important. Um, when you're in an interview, uh, there's a lot of times you're going to be nervous, and uh, you may. It, it does not matter how many times you've rehearsed what you want to say to the interviewee interviewer. Um, you will forget a lot of lines. And, and I know that there's a lot of people that I've worked with that has written down exactly what they want to say, and they will take a copy of their script with them and try to read it while they're talking. But that doesn't work all the time because uh, uh, the interviewer will see that. Um, the best thing, that, the best advice we have is just be attentive. When you're, when you're talking to the interviewer, be attentive and alert. Um, Try to expect the unexpected. Um, that means that, of course, they're going to ask questions that you didn't think of. Um, that's why we wrote the book, because we put about 50 questions and answers in the book of interviewing, interviewing questions and answers of what may be um, directed towards you. And best advice, like I said, just be attentive and alert. Do not tr- be nervous. Uh, we give a lot of suggestions on how to sit, you know, um, uh, do not uh, accept any uh, beverage, don't go in chewing gum, don't have your, your cell phone or pager turned on, and uh, you're there trying to sell yourself, and you should not sell yourself short. What if someone asks you the question, what is your biggest uh, weakness? What is your greatest weakness? How do you answer that? That often comes up. Okay. Uh, sometimes, uh, I, would, I would say sometimes I can be a perfectionist, and I focus too much on being a detail-oriented employee. Uh, I have felt that that is one of the best answers that you can come up with because you do not want to spotlight your true weakness. You're there to get the job. Well, that is uh, turning it around to the positive. Yes, sir. And that's that's probably the advice. Try to take everything that they say and turn it into a positive if they if they really uh, zero in on some things that maybe make you feel uncomfortable. But that's a that's an art to learn to do that. So probably some practicing would be key there. 
Oh, yes, sir. That's why we have the book. And um, like I said, we do have the questions. Uh, a lot of questions, easy questions and answers, but then we also put in some of those difficult and unexpected questions. So that's why we do have the answers for them. And everyone who has a job, there's always something that bugs them about that job or they complain about a way their boss is or there's something they have to do. We really need to turn all of that into positives, too. We can't let those little things get to us, can we? No, sir. No, sir. I, in Chapter 23, we speak about ways to maintain your current job, um, how you should not outshine a coworker. Uh, we give a uh, two paragraphs on that. Uh, we explain the best ways to approach that, um, how to always be best with your job, how to develop your skills, keep your promises. Uh, this chapter is very, very close to our hearts because these are all true statements that we have experienced, and this is how my wife and I have lived through our careers. Odie, we just have a, a, a minute uh, left. Why don't you just give us some concluding thoughts about your book, the benefits of reading your book. What would they be overall? Well, the book was written to influence every worker and non-working person. Uh, this is uh, directed to anyone who desires to increase their employment status. And the three words that my wife and I would like to describe this book is employment, survival guidance. Well, how do we get your book, Odie? The book is currently online right now. Uh, it is located at arthurhouse.com. You can also purchase a copy at amazon.com. Well, we want to thank you, Odie, for being on Author Talk. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. That was Odie Smith. He is the author of his book, Mr. and Mrs. Smith Employment Survival Guide. 